Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. One dark night outside a small town, a fire started inside a local chemical plant. Before long, it exploded into flames and an alarm went out to all the different fire departments for miles and miles around. After fighting this fire for over an hour, the president of the chemical company came up to the fire chief and he said, we have all of our secret formulas in the vault, in the center of that plant, in the center of that fire. We need to save them. And he said, I will give $50,000 to the engine company that brings them out safely. Well, as soon as the chief heard this, dollar signs got his attention. As soon as the chief heard this, he ordered the firemen to strengthen their attack on the center of the fire. But this was a massive inferno. This was a massive fire. And after another two hours of attacking this fire, the president of the company offered $100,000 to the engine company that brought out the safe and protected those secret files. Well, from the distance, a long siren was heard. And then another fire truck came into sight. And it was a small town volunteer fire department made up of men all over the age of 65. And everyone was amazed by this group because this little fire engine came racing through the gates of the chemical plant and they drove right into the middle of this inferno. And from a distance, the other firemen, they just watched. They couldn't believe it because the old timers, Walter, they just hopped off of their rig and began to fight this fire with an effort these people had never seen before. And after an hour of these old timers fighting this fire, it was completely put out and the safe and all of its secrets for the company were saved. And the president of this company was so excited by this, he announced that he would increase the reward. He would double the reward to $200,000. And so he walked over to the firemen to personally thank each of the volunteers. And he asked the group of men what they intended to do with the reward money. And the driver of the fire truck he looked him right dead in the eye and he said, the first thing we're going to do is fix the brakes on that truck. <laughs> As we walk through Hebrews chapter 11, the author, Ben's still laughing, the author is going to take us through what it means to build a life based on faith. But we need to be careful as we walk through Hebrews 11. We need to be careful to identify what faith is. And we need to be careful to identify the type of confidence that we are to have as the redeemed people of God. Because just like our firefighter heroes, what can sometimes look like confidence may not be the real thing. Hebrews is here to remind us that we can have a confident hope that Jesus Christ is coming back. We can have a confident hope that when he returns, there's going to be a great day of reckoning. We can have a confident hope that Satan will one day be removed from the earth, that through Christ, God's people will have the final victory. We can have a confident hope that one day there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. 
We have a confident hope that the God who created us will bring us into his presence. That we can look forward to the day when there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. And because of our faith, we can have a confident hope that we're going to be reunited with all the believers who have gone before us. And I have the confident hope that all the things I've given up in my life, all the hours I've spent serving my Savior is going to pay dividends one day. We have this hope. Why? Because our faith is in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Now, what is faith? It is confidence in all the things we hope for in Christ. Faith believes even when we don't see it. Faith sacrifices even when we don't have to. Faith obeys even when we don't understand it. Faith perseveres even when we don't want to. Why is faith so important to our lives? It is the foundation of our lives. It is the foundation of our salvation. And for the believer, as you learn to walk by faith, as you learn to build your life of faith, it allows us to draw closer and closer to Jesus Christ. So verse 1 of Hebrews 11, it teaches us, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Not many verses this morning. Why? Because I want us to let these words sink in. Read it again. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me give you two observations that I noticed in the text this past week as I studied chapter 11. First, notice with me that the examples of living by faith are listed in chronological order. The first example of faith pertains to the creation of the universe. In other words, where does the author start? He starts with Genesis 1-1. And then he moves. He moves on. He moves on to Abel in Genesis 4. And then next to Enoch in Genesis 5. And then to Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. Then to the events in the life of Abraham, Genesis 11 through 22. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all of whom are found in Genesis It's almost as if the author makes his way from Genesis forward, citing examples of faith. These were people who trusted God, even when they were ridiculed, persecuted, humiliated, hunted, and killed. They maintained their faith, even though they never in their lifetime received all the blessings promised to them. A second observation I see in the text is that in chapter 11, the author purposely is showing faith in the lives of God's people. But I want you to notice every example that he gives is either before or separate from the Mosaic law. Even when we get to Moses, nothing is said about him and the law because the author was carefully trying to point out that in the old testament these men they lived by faith they built their lives on their faith the expression by faith is found 19 times in this chapter but faith you see faith We misunderstand it today. Faith does not always mean that a healing will come, that death can be avoided. We'll see that Abel, he died for his faith, but Enoch, he was spared from death because of his faith. More than 20 times in Hebrews chapter 11, we see a reference to death because faith removes the fear of death. Faith looks beyond death to when God will fulfill his word. This section of text is all about believers learning to live their lives based on faith. 
It is showing the believers the connection between faith and endurance that was mentioned at the end of chapter 10. So back to verse 1. Notice our text again. Now, I would disagree with those that try to make this a definition of faith. I don't think it is. I think it's better to say that this is a description, a description of what faith does. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the reality of things hoped for. Faith gives substance to the unseen realities. Or another way to say it, to make it easier for us to understand, would be to say that faith treats things hoped for as a reality. And the word substance was used for a a title deed. A title deed has no value all by itself, but it certifies ownership, meaning that we can have assurance. We can have confidence in our future in Christ. Faith is confidence in the things yet to come. Things that we cannot see will happen just as God has promised because it's grounded in God's promise to us, a God who cannot lie. This is the basic nature of faith. Faith starts with believing in God's character, that God is exactly who he says he is in his word. And then it moves to believing in what he's promised us as believers in Christ, that God will do exactly what he said he's going to do. And so we hope for the things promised by God, confident that God is going to keep his word. But let's be careful as we look at this. It's not just this idea that if we believe something, we can make it happen. That if I just have enough faith, that I can make the hair on the top of my head somehow grow. Or if I just have enough faith, my old man arthritis is going to be gone. Or that if you just have enough faith in the promises of God, somehow God is going to absolutely for sure 100% heal that loved one. It's not about a wish list. We're talking about faith or trust in the written word of God, assurance or conviction about what God has shown us already written down in his word. Evidence or proof or conviction. Faith proves what is unseen is real. Faith proves that what Christ has promised us is real. Faith is the basis for everything that we hope for. It is the inner conviction of the heart where you know the truth of God, that heaven and hell and sin and God's forgiveness are just as real as the rocks in the trees. That even though we cannot see it, we know that eternal life in Christ, our future rewards in heaven are just as real as the air that we breathe. It reminds me of the old story of the little boy who was told to be sure to wash his hands before dinner. And this boy, he went and did what he was told. And as he was doing this, he could be heard muttering underneath his breath, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus. That's all I ever hear about. And I've never seen either one of them. One of the statements that I've heard people make a number of times over the years after I speak is that they can tell that I really, really believe the word of God. Now, I didn't know what to do with this statement for years. It befuddled me, and and honestly, it still kind of does. I don't know what to do with that. Yes, I believe the Word of God. Why would you not? Yes, I believe the Word of God, every single line of it, because I've had the privilege, I have been blessed to be able to study God's Word for many hours a week for several decades, and after all those years, I still cannot find anything in it that is not true. And if I could, I'd be out. If I found lies or dishonesty or corruption in the word of God, I'd be out. I wouldn't follow Christ, but I can't find anything. It's true. 
It's true. You see, God has brought me to this point through his word where the doubts are absolutely gone and where to me the reality of the return of Jesus Christ is just as certain as the air that we sit here and breathe. So yes, there are times when I am like anybody else. I don't feel like living for Christ. And there are times where I don't even feel like coming to church or reading God's word. But the steady confidence that I have in Jesus Christ, it brings me back. It's the only thing that can. This is a work that God has done in my life, and God wants to do the same thing in your life, but you can't get there if you're not going to study God's Word. You can't get there if you refuse to study God's Word. You can't get there if you won't let the Spirit of God govern your life, your thinking. You see, faith, it looks forward to the future, to the things we hope for in Christ. Because when you renew your mind with the word of God, faith allows you to make decisions that you face in life in a way that brings glory to God. Based on your faith that what he says is true in his written word. You see, this type of conviction about God's word helps you to stand when you're tempted to walk away. This type of conviction helps Christians to stand when the persecution comes. Faith, it allows us to see things more clearly, the things that actually really matter. This is how we endure. This is how we continue on in the faith, by remembering the promises of Christ. Our hope is to be the settled assurance that comes from the Word of God. Hope must have a foundation. It can't just be wishful thinking that I wish the Bible was true. Hope must have a foundation. It must be based on something. And in Scripture, the foundation of hope is always on what God has promised to his people. Well, you've heard this old saying that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You know what? Scripture here in this text is running in the opposite direction. It's saying our ability to do any earthly good for the cause of Jesus Christ is based entirely on what we know in our minds to be true about our heavenly position in Christ. It's a solid confidence that we can have in Christ. Many years ago, Charles Fuller was a Baptist pastor and a radio evangelist, and he announced that he would be speaking the following Sunday on heaven and during that week, a beautiful letter was received from an old man who is very, very sick. The following is part of that letter. Let me read it to you this morning. It says, next Sunday, you are to talk about heaven. Now, I'm interested in that land because I have held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price, but the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. I am not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. It's not a vacant lot. The greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me which will never need to be remodeled or repaired because it will suit me perfectly individually and will never, ever grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundations, for they rest on the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors, for no vicious person can enter that land where my dwelling stands. It is now almost completed and ready for me to enter in and abide in peacefully, eternally, without fear of ever being rejected. So I, I hope, I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home in Los Angeles. 
but I have no assurance that I will be able to do so. See, my ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey, no return coupon, and no permit for baggage. Yes, I'm all ready to go, and I may not be here while you talk next Sunday, but I shall meet you there someday. That's beautiful, isn't it? And that is the type of assurance and confidence that we are to have that Christ wants for you and I. It comes by building a life of faith based on his word. You know, I heard of a pastor who's put it this way once. He said this. He said, I'm homesick for heaven. It's the hope of dying that has kept me alive this long. That's the life of faith. That's the life of faith. Verse 2 in our text. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. For by faith is what he's saying. Elders here referring to the Old Testament saints who walked with God, who walked in confidence with God, the great heroes of the Old Testament. They lived and made decisions based on their faith. They had a good testimony before God. Their faith was put to the test and God approved of how they lived. But I want you to notice with me that the life lived by faith led to the good testimony. You see, people get this completely backwards in the church today, trying to put on an outward show without first trying to live by faith. Your focus should never be on others. Your focus should not be on what they think. Your focus needs to be on Christ, on his word. It has been rightly said that when you come to faith in Christ for salvation, God automatically enrolls you in a school, the school of faith. Troubles in life are the exams meant to teach us, meant to draw us closer to Jesus Christ. Verse 3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, this is, again, another illustration of faith. Faith allows us to understand that God created the world from nothing. He created the universe by his spoken word. You see, faith accepts God's viewpoint, how God is looking at these things, as told to us in his written word. And God clearly stated that he has created everything. You see, faith believes Genesis 1 just as much as Revelation 21. And notice the wording here, by faith we understand. Faith in God's word produces knowledge. Knowledge of things that the people of the world cannot know apart from God. You see, if you believe the Bible, you believe in creation. You believe that God brought both time and everything from the entire universe into existence. It says the worlds were framed by God, and it takes faith to believe this because no person was alive to see it. And so we have to take his word, the word of who? The word of the creator himself. It makes me think of the words that God said to Job in chapter 38. Do you remember where he said, God said this to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding you see, that's the testimony of God that we are called to believe. We serve a God who is able to call all that exists into being from nothing. A God of such power is worthy to be believed. And here's what I don't want you to miss. The Bible makes a direct connection between the teaching that God created all things and a believer's faith. Meaning if you don't believe in the creation account, you are either ignorant of what the Bible says about creation or you are in fact calling God a liar. Those are your two options. Ignorant or calling God a liar. 
You see, you're, you're just like Job. You're telling the creator that, hey, you know better, that you don't have to trust what he says. But here's the other side of this. As Christians, this text is telling us that we can stand back and we can look at creation. And we live in a beautiful place to do this. We can stand back and look at creation and just know by looking at it that God is there. He exists. Creation points to the creator. It testifies of the creator. By faith, we know he exists. Long before Ferdinand Magellan set out in 1519 to prove once and for all that the earth was round by sailing around the world. The Bible already spoke about this. The Bible spoke of the earth as being a circle back in Isaiah 40, verse 22. Did you know the ancient cultures, they all had their different theories about what held up the earth? See, the Greeks believed it was a mythological giant named Atlas, who held the earth on his shoulders. You've seen depictions of this. The Hindus had their own myth of elephants or turtles carrying the earth on their back. (laughs) That's kind of strange. But yet, what does the Bible teach? It teaches in Job 26, 7, that God suspends or hangs the earth on what? Nothing. Now we know this is true, but I ask you, how did ancient man know this? No other... Ancient culture taught this, only God's word. Hipparchus, there's a guy you probably don't know about. He was the father of astronomy, and he believed that there were only 1,080 stars in the sky. Well, some 300 years later, Ptolemy said he counted 1,056 stars in the sky. I think he had worse eyesight. But it wasn't until the invention of the telescope that it was discovered that the stars in the skies, they can't even be counted. And isn't this exactly what scripture tells us? You see, Genesis 22, verse 17 and Jeremiah 33, 22 already stated that long, long before that the stars are innumerable. They cannot be counted. Astronomer Dr. Peter Edwards explained how hard it is for us as as people to even get our minds, our heads around the concept of how big the universe truly is. We can't comprehend it. We're impressed by the size of an elephant or a giant tree. You go down to the redwoods, you're impressed by the size of those things. But if we go beyond that, our brains, they start to lose our understanding Edwards said they pointed the Hubble telescope at what appeared to be just an average, very ordinary section of the night sky. And he said this, he said, imagine holding up your finger, your very finger with a grain of sand on it and looking at the patch of sky that the grain of sand blocks out. That's the narrow field of view that the Hubble telescope zoomed into. And what it saw was absolutely incredible. There are 10,000 galaxies in a patch of sky the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. 10,000 galaxies. And it's estimated that the visible universe, it used to be said there was 100 billion galaxies. Now they say there's 2 trillion galaxies, meaning they don't know. And they think that each of those galaxies contains around 100 billion stars. That means there's more stars in the visible universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. During the early 20th century, most scientists, even including Einstein, believed that the universe was static, meaning it wasn't changing. It was just staying the same. 
Then in 1929, astronomer Edwin Hubble showed that the distant galaxies were receding, were moving. They were moving further from the Earth. And the further away that they got, the faster they were actually speeding up. In other words, the universe is expanding. But see, if you go read Job 9, 8, Isaiah 42, 5, Jeremiah 51, 15, Zechariah 12, verse 1, all of those state that God stretches out the heavens. Starting with Einstein in the early 1900s, science has confirmed that the universe had a beginning. But we already know this, right? Why? Because every Christian in this room can quote the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And do you remember the words we saw in Hebrews 1, verse 10? It said, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You see, faith in God's word produces knowledge, knowledge of things that the people of the world cannot know apart from God. Matthew Fontaine Mari, he discovered this as he wrote one of the first books on oceanography in the mid-1800s. See, he was able to chart the ocean currents, including pathways for the ships at sea. Later on, he charted the migration of whales. And Mari attributed his discovery of the ocean paths to the scripture found in Psalm 8.8 that says there are these paths. It says this, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. It wasn't until the 1970s, with the help of deep diving research submarines, that researchers actually discovered springs on the ocean floor. And yet, what do we read? We read in Genesis 7:11, Genesis 8:2, Job 38:16, Proverbs 8:28. They all speak of the springs and fountains of the deep. You know, in 1925, for the first time, they did soundings on the seafloor, and they were taken to get a picture of the topography of the seabed. And they were absolutely astonished to discover that there were mountain ranges longer on the seabeds than any mountain on land. But when Jonah took a ride in the whale in the depths of the water, he wrote about the mountains under the sea in Jonah 2 very, very long ago. Here's what I'm trying to get you to understand. I don't believe that science proves the Bible. I believe that science is finally starting to catch up with the Bible. Several years ago, a scientist wrote an article entitled Seven Reasons Why I Believe in God. Listen to what he said. He said, consider the rotation of the earth. Our globe spins on its axis at the rate of 1,000 miles per hour. See, we are on the move faster than you think, Amy. We're on the move. If it were just 100 miles an hour, our days and nights would be 10 times longer. The vegetation would freeze in the long night and it would burn in the long day, meaning there could be no life. Consider the heat of the sun, 10,000 degrees at the surface temperature, and we're just far enough away to be blessed by its warmth. If the sun only gave off half of its radiation, we would freeze to death. If it gave off one half more, we would be crispy critters like those tater tots in the oven. Consider the slant of the earth at 23 degrees. If it were much different from that, the vapors of the oceans would ice over the continents and there could be no life. Consider the moon. If the moon were 50,000 miles away rather than the distance now at over 200,000 miles twice each day, do you know what would happen to us? Giant tides would inundate every bit of landmass on the earth. We would be destroyed. Think of the crust of the earth. Just a little bit thicker and there could be no life because there'd be no air, no oxygen. 
If our atmosphere were just a fuzz thinner than it is, the millions of meteors that are now burning themselves out in space would smash this earth into oblivion. You see, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Evolutionists have no room for God, no toleration for creationism, because they have no room for a design of the universe. They consider it all to be the random working of the blind forces of chance over billions and billions of years. There is evidence of a design and an omniscient genius everywhere in the universe because the design demands a designer. And the evolutionists cannot have any of that at any price at all, so they have to make some ridiculous assumptions. Let me just give you a few. They assume that the non-living things gave rise to the living material. In other words, spontaneous generation occurred. Louis Pasteur disproved this in 1859, and no reputable scientist believes it for a second today, and yet spontaneous generation is critical for the theory of evolution. Atheistic evolution demands that it must have happened because there's no other alternative to sustain this theory. They assume that viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals are all interrelated meaning that tree outside is your long-lost cousin or something. They assume that single-celled organisms gave rise to multi-celled organisms. None of these things can be proven. And so you are either going to take the word of men who were not there, men whose theories are constantly changing, or we can take our stand, friends, with the word of God. We could take our stand with the author of Hebrews that by faith we recognize that our worlds were framed by the word of God. And then notice the end of the verse, verse 3. It says, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. You see, faith allows us to understand that God created the world by nothing but his spoken word. Faith enables us to understand what God does. Faith enables us to see what others cannot see. This is at the heart of why people believe evolution, because without faith, they simply don't understand. Now, follow the thinking with me, if you would, at the end of verse 3. If anything existed before creation, like the cosmic egg that evolutionists believe in, this pre-existent material would then also be eternal. And in other words, on the same level with God. But this verse tells us something. It tells us that God didn't use anything else. He didn't use material that was already there. God didn't just recycle the earth. It was new. God called the earth and the universe into existence out of nothing. God simply said, let there be, and there was. Creation came into being. We understand by faith that life, life is not an accident, that creation is not an accident, that our world was created for a purpose, and we, friends, are part of that purpose. And if you don't think this is important, I would argue with you. I would argue that this is a foundational point of our theology, a foundational part of God's revelation to us. Faith has confidence in the loving God who brought our world into existence. Chances are you've never heard of this man, a man by the name of Mirhan Nasari. 
One day, he found himself stranded in the international airport in Paris, France. Now, he'd been expelled from his native country of Iran, and his Belgian-issued refugee documents had been stolen, taken away from him. So here he was, he had no passport, he had no citizenship, he had no papers that enabled him to actually leave to another airport, he had no papers that allowed him to fly to another country, and the French officials, they sent him away because he lacked documentation to go anywhere else, so he he flew to England, but was denied entry, and then he got sent back to Paris. And when he was returned to the Paris airport back in 1988, airport authorities allowed him to just live there in Terminal 1. And there he stayed for 11 years. He would just sit there, writing in a diary, living off of handouts from the airport employees, and he'd have to clean up in the bathroom. Finally, in September of 1999, something was done about it. French authorities presented Merhan with an international travel card and a French residency permit. Suddenly, after 11 years of living at the airport, he was free to go anywhere he wanted. But here's what happened. When the airport officials handed him his walking papers, to everyone's surprise, he smiled. He tucked the documents in his folder, and he just continued writing in his diary. And he stayed there, living for many years after that. Why? Because here was a man that lost sight of his destination. A man who had gotten so off track in his life that he found it comfortable to live in an airport terminal. But I don't know if that's any stranger or any worse than what I see Christians do all the time when Christians lose their way. I hope you never let this happen to you because each of us was created for a purpose. Each of us was given life to live and serve the God who made us. But some Christians would rather not live for the Creator. And so they take up residence in this world, never looking to move on in their journey of faith, never looking to fulfill the path, never looking to fulfill what God has for them. See, it starts with faith. It starts with the settled confidence that God is the creator. Faith believes even when we don't see it. Faith sacrifices even when we don't have to. Faith obeys even when we don't understand it. Faith perseveres even when we don't want to. Faith allows us to see more clearly the things that really matter. Never lose sight of where the Lord will take us. Be confident in his word, confident in the creator. Build your life of faith in Christ and trust Him for the eternal reward. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.